Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, picking up in verse 10 and go down to verse 30 today. And I almost uh, finished out chapter 13, but I held back a little bit just because of uh, busyness of life, kind of jumping in and uh, throwing a little wrenches at me this week. And also currently uh, because of my Uh, past neck injury and I'm in physical therapy so that's eating up a little of my time during the week as well and uh, I just wanted to just like that's enough that's sufficient we don't need to jump down to the last few verses of this chapter Lord willing we'll pick it up next week but we are currently in lesson 62 of our chronological gospels we are in the gospel of luke and luke in this section that really began back in chapter 12 um, it doesn't fit with the other gospels connectively too well and we never really anticipate too much connection with the gospel of john john stands off on his own john did his own thing he picked up and told us things about Jesus that the other gospel writers did not tell, except for a few points, like walking on the water, like feeding of the 5,000, the crucifixion, of course. But John did um, filling in the gaps, I might say, that a lot of the things we wouldn't know about Jesus if it wasn't for John. But the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, fairly meshed together well, except for this section that kind of goes over to chapter 18. And so we're going to be hanging around Luke's gospel to get us through this section. But we do have a key verse in verse 22 today that lets us know where we are at in the narrative. And this fits perfect. So Luke is in the narrative as far as Jesus working his way toward Jerusalem. He makes that comment in verse 22 where it says, And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then in verse 34, he'll say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We'll look at this next week. The one who kills the prophets and the stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So Luke gives us a clue of the timeline that Jesus is working his way towards Jerusalem for that final week that he'll have there in Jerusalem, when at the end of that week he will be crucified. So we're in that timeline But Luke also, and we'll begin with something that none of the other Gospels writers speak about, is a woman who had 18 years of suffering who was touched by Jesus. That's our first section of the teaching today that I 
have titled The Call and the Touch of Jesus. And we're going to have three points in today's message in verses 10 through 17 of Luke 13. The healing on the Sabbath. In Luke 13, 18 through 21, two kingdom parables. And Luke 13, 22 through 30, the narrow gate. Now, some of this, the Synoptic Gospels did touch on. We'll talk about that when we get past this first point. But this first point, Luke gives us this one, and it stands alone. Uh, We don't read about it in Matthew or Mark or John. So this is something unique to the Gospel of Luke. And we begin the healing on the Sabbath, 18 years of suffering, verses 10 through 13. The Word of God tells us, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So Jesus, like his apostles after him, especially Paul, customarily taught in the synagogues. The synagogues, um, we don't find anything about synagogue worship in the Old Testament. It's something that is introduced to us in the New Testament. And historians, uh, biblical historians, really aren't quite sure, and even I would say Jewish historians aren't quite sure when the place of synagogues began, the role of synagogues began to take place in the nation of Israel, but it's believed to be after the fall of the temple by the Babylonians and the Israelis, the Judeans properly Uh, brought into the Babylonian captivity, that during that time of the captivity, synagogues uh, came into formation at that time. By the time of Christ, uh, the rules concerning a synagogue in the city, sometimes in the book of Acts especially, we'll read of Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas going to a riverside to worship there, and it'll tell of a few faithful worshiping at the river. When it tells us that they went to a river to worship, it meant that there was no Jewish synagogue in that city. And then the people customarily went to the river to worship. We do know uh, that that happened in Babylon when they were by the riverside in Babylon uh, singing the songs of Zion. And we read about that in the Old Testament. But as far as synagogues are concerned, it took... 10 Jewish males in a community to form a synagogue. And this is not temple worship. They didn't offer sacrifices, but they came together to uh, read scripture, to teach the word of God. It's where prayer was made. And here's the thing that really stands out to me about this woman that she has had this spirit of infirmity. She was bent over. Um, the, the Greek in this uh, being infirmed or bent over is pretty strong. So almost to the point of possibly being doubled over, but at least stooped over. She could not stand straight. And this had been going on for 18 years. 
And I tell you, on Friday morning, I was getting ready for class. You guys know that I'm uh, currently working toward a master's with Western Seminary, and I every semester I have four all-day classes. They always fall on a Friday, and uh, this past Friday was one of those classes, and normally I sit at our kitchen table when I'm at home, and I just work there. We have a nice big bay window that it's just nice, and I like to sit downstairs, but not for class. We're on video, and I don't want them to see my kitchen, and so I go upstairs, and I was setting up, and plus I give more than one screen and uh, just make it more useful for class, and all I was doing was standing and stooping over slightly to set down, I think, um, a computer keyboard, and I felt something hit in my back, and it's like, oh, and, and my back went out in that moment. And it's still out in this moment. And uh, I can stand straight. Sometimes when my back goes out, I can't stand straight. But I can stand straight even though I'm standing with a little pain today. This woman couldn't even stand straight. And, and only a little bit of a sense. I can feel her pain. But she's still at the house of God worshiping. She'd been having this for 18 years and she's still coming and worshiping the Lord and that really stands out to me in a great way because um, it means to me that she had not blamed God she had not forsaken God but she was still seeking the Lord and because she was there she was available for the Lord Jesus Christ to reach out to her, to call to her, to touch her with his healing power. And no wonder Jesus would later on refer to her as a daughter of Abraham. They were many descendants of Abraham in that synagogue on that day. They were probably all Jewish there, and there could have been some proselytes there. But Paul tells us in Romans that it's not necessarily those who are of the seed physically of Abraham, but those who are of the faith of Abraham that becomes his descendants. In Romans 4.16, he says it this way, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, meaning the Jewish people, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so she was Jewish, but what I want to point out is that she was not only just Jewish in the sense of she was a descendant of Abraham, she was of the faith of Abraham. Life wasn't going well. She had 18 years of great difficulty, but she was still in the house of the Lord. She was not blaming or forsaking God. She was seeking the Lord, and because she was there, the Lord Jesus was able to call out to her and was able to touch and heal her. So are we willing to faithfully seek the Lord even when life isn't working out as we might hope or plan? Now, the first part of this verse, Job 13, 15, is what I want us to focus on, not the second half, and I'll explain that in a moment. Here's the attitude of Job. 
speaking to his friends, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, he's talking about God, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Now those are real good words to say. The second half of the verse, not so much. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Now if you read through the whole book of Job, when the Lord finally called Job to stand before him to make a defense, Job said, I got nothing to say. I'm dirt, I'm dust. I got nothing to say, Lord. But early on, apparently he thought he had a lot to say to God until he was in the presence of the Lord. And I think in this life, we have a lot of people who think that way. And they think, man, when I get to heaven, when I stand before God, he's going to hear it from me. And I think we'll be like Job. We'll stand before God and we'll say, I got nothing to say. We need to have the attitude of the first half of that verse, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will still trust him. I think that is the attitude that this woman had. And we'll find out in a moment, though, it wasn't God who was slaying her. Satan was at play causing this infirmity. So the call and touch of Jesus causes the woman, though, to glorify God in verse 13. And as a result, we'll see that all the multitude together for all the glorious things that were done by him, they rejoiced. All the multitude rejoiced because of the things that were done by Jesus. When we receive the call and the touch of Jesus in our lives, it not only gives us the opportunity to glorify God in the presence of others, it might cause others to rejoice in the things that Jesus is doing. Yet not everyone was rejoicing in that synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue, the top guy there, he wasn't really the top guy there. He, we do know that Jesus, <laughs> the Son of God, was there, so he's, he's the top guy. But this guy thought he was. And I believe personally that maybe he thought, I have to correct this rabbi. This might have been what the top ruler was thinking. In verses, verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, he said to the crowd, so to me, he's doing a corrective teaching. I see what that man's doing over here, but I want to tell you, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath day. So I believe the ruler of the synagogue was talking to the people saying, what you're seeing happening over here, don't glorify, don't rejoice over that. That's wrong. That's sin. They're going against the word of God. I believe that he was thinking he needed to correct Jesus. And once again, sometimes we may fall into that category where we think we have to correct Jesus in a thing or two. Just know that when you ever have those thoughts, the wrong thoughts, get away from it. You'll be like Job. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. It's like, no, you won't, Job. When you stand before him, you're not going to say a word. Better to say, though he slay me, still I will trust him. It could have been, I mean, six days you are to work. He's quoting a portion of the fourth commandment that's found in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. He's quoting a portion of scripture. And what he was saying was true as far as what he's quoting 
The problem was that he was misapplying God's original intent. And Jesus dealt with this. He often would heal on the Sabbath. The religious rulers would just look for Jesus to do some kind of work on the Sabbath that they might have something to accuse him by. And so in Mark 3, 4, we find Jesus asking those on a Sabbath, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to kill, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. They wouldn't answer him. Jesus said, I am going to do good on the Sabbath. Mark 7, 9, he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And so there was the problem. They were given the word of God, but traditions developed around the word of God that they began to keep the tradition over the word of God. They were literally breaking God's word because of their tradition. If the ruler of the synagogue had his way, he would have had those who needed to respond to the call and the touch of Jesus Christ to come back on any other day but the Sabbath. But let me ask you a question. What better day to see the Lord God do a work in the midst of his people for us on a Sunday morning when we're gathered together as the body of Christ, maybe on a Wednesday evening when we're gathered together as the body of Christ? What better day to see God do a work to move upon his people than when the people of God are gathered together. Lord, we're here to worship you, to hear from you, to be touched by you. So the importance of Sunday, it reminded me, and perhaps you've heard this before, I pulled this little account of D.L. Moody back in 1871 on the day that the Chicago fire broke out. Here's a little bit of that article that was written about that account, and you can read about it on... Uh, uh, you can go to uh, Moody's website and find information about this. I found an article that kind of condensed a little bit of it, and there are some more lengthier articles about it. But the day of the Chicago fire changed Moody's perspective of doing ministry from that day forward. D.L. Moody, and I'm reading now, by his own admission, made a mistake on the 18th of October, 1871, a mistake that he determined never to repeat. He had been preaching in the city of Chicago. That particular night drew his largest audience yet. Yet his message was, What will you do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? By the end of the service, he was tired. He concluded his message with a presentation of the gospel and a concluding statement. Now I give you a week to think that over. And when we come together again, you will have opportunity to respond. A soloist began to sing, and before the final note, the music was drowned out by the clanging of bells, the wailing of sirens, screaming through the streets. The great Chicago fire was ablaze. In the ashen aftermath, aftermath, ashen aftermath, tricky, this author, putting two A words together like that, tripping me up. 
In the aftermath, hundreds were dead, over a hundred thousand were homeless. Without a doubt, some who had heard Moody's message had died in the fire. He reflected remorsefully that he would have given his right arm before he would ever give an audience another week to think over the message of the gospel. It changed him forever. The urgency of responding to the call and touch of Christ while you are in the house of the Lord. And what better place to respond to the call and touch of Christ than on the Sabbath day or on the Lord's day. So Jesus answered verses 15 through 17. The Lord then answered and said to him, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it to a way to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So Jesus condemned them because technically they broke the Sabbath all the time. I mean, if you, and this was an agrarian society, they dealt with animals all the time. And there were things that had to be done. I mean, you can't just, on for them, on Friday evening, say to your animals, hope you guys make it through the next 24 hours. See you afterwards when the Sabbath is over. You don't do that. There were daily things that they had to do in caring for their animals. And Jesus pointed this out. They would loose their ox, their donkey, to bring them to water. And Jesus then applied that to the loosing of the bond of bounds of, of Satan upon this woman's life. He loosed the bonds that were upon her. Again, it was on a Sabbath day when the man with the withered hand in Matthew 12, 11 and 12, Jesus said, What man is there among you as one sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? And how much of more value is this man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus was, it doesn't tell us that he was casting out a demon here. Perhaps this affliction of Satan that had bound her for 18 years, made her miserable for 18 years, was merely the result of the fall and sin that had come upon humanity because of the fall of humanity. But what better place, what better day to be freed from Satan's grip than in the house of God on the Sabbath day? And I think about that. When I was a kid, my friends, uh, a few of them raced motocross. I always wanted to do that. I always felt that one day when I could afford a bike, I would do that. And now that I can afford a bike, I'm too old to do that. It's not going to happen. So I can still in, enjoy watching. And to tell you the truth, one of my friends gave me a ride home on the back of his dirt bike one time 
and I've never been so scared in my life on a motorcycle than when I was sitting on, and it was a guy, so you can't put your hands around his waist. So all I was doing is holding on to the strap like a cowboy between the seat and uh, just praying I wouldn't get bucked off. I think he forgot he had a passion, passenger. So I was never that insane, never that crazy to be any good at motocross like they were. But there was a film back in the day titled On Any Sunday, and it was all about motocross racing. But I have always remembered the title of that film, not because of motocross racing, but because of church. On Any Sunday. On Any Sunday, somebody can come in with sin-laden, Satan-afflicted in the house of the Lord, and they can be set free on any Sunday. It gives me hope every Sunday that when we gather together, we can respond collectively or individually to the call and trust or touch of Jesus in our lives. And although the enemies of Christ, they were put to shame because of the hardness of their hearts, the true worshipers of God on that day, they rejoiced by the things that they were seeing through the work that Jesus was doing. You know, when religion gets in the way of people coming to Jesus, clearly that religion is out of sync with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you responded to the call and touch of Jesus in your life? I hope that you have. So we are given in our next section two kingdom parables. In verses 18 through 21, we actually looked at these last November. We're in lesson 62, back in lesson 35. We looked at these, one from Matthew's gospel, one from Mark's gospel. And so we're just going to do a quick review of these since... Luke brings them in in the context of this passage. I didn't want to skip over them totally, but we're going to do a quick review. These are kingdom parables, and largely Matthew and Mark, we find the kingdom parables grouped together in Matthew 13 and in Mark 4. I looked up the word parable in the um, Gospel of Luke, and 16 times Luke identifies Jesus teaching a parable, and there were more parables. We're going to read two of them that are not even called parables. So there are more than 16, but 16, he identifies them as a parable in chapters 5, 6, 8, 9, 12, 13, 14, 15, 18, 20, and 21. So while Matthew and Mark mostly grouped all the parables right in a row in one chapter, Luke spread them out across his gospel. And this is a kingdom of God parable. We begin with the first one in verses 18 and 19. He said, what is the kingdom of God like? What, to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. So there's two main interpretations. We looked at this last year as well. Two main interpretations to this parable. The first teaches that the kingdom of God, they teach that it is the church. I believe the church is part of the kingdom of God, not all of the kingdom of God, but the church becomes part of the kingdom of God, of course. Though it began very small, it will continue to grow until it covers the whole earth, or in other words, until all the earth believes. 
The second teaches that though it begins small and it grows into this large tree, that the birds themselves, speaking about uh, Satan in Mark 4, verse 4 and verse 15, Jesus specifically refers to the birds as Satan in the parable of the sower. And so they equate this to the church, yes, growing large, but having both believers and unbelievers taking shelter in the kingdom of God. The next parable is similar. The two parables trying to drive to the same point. Verses 20 and 21. What shall I like in the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of mill, mill, till it was all leavened. So once again, we find the two main interpretations. The first is that the church begins very small, God's kingdom, very small, but the, as leaven, it will rise, it will grow until it covers the whole earth, until all the earth believes. The second teaches that though very small, this leaven, leavening process, that in the Bible, leaven often speaks about a corrupting influence that can have on something. Uh, it is why when we receive communion, we have unleavened bread. It is why the Jews on Passover, they have unleavened bread because leaven becomes representative, symbolic of evil or sin throughout the Bible. And we find this in the Gospels in Matthew 16, 6 and 12. Leaven is referred to as false doctrine in Mark 8:15 as worldliness in Luke 21:1 hypocrisy in 1 Corinthians 5:6 apathy over sin and in Galatians 5:9 apostasy so we do see that leaven is seen as a type of an influence that affects gradual change change in something like the leavening of bread but symbolically in the Bible often seen as evil so in the early church we do have examples of Satan's activity in the early church the church is growing and we find in the book of Acts that uh, Ananias and Sapphira lied to God in presenting a gift there at the church that they were uh, Satan poisoned a sorcerer named Simon with bitterness, bound him with iniquity. Paul warned the church of Corinth of false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves as apostles of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11:13, John warned the church in 1 John 4:1 to test the spirits whether they are of God because many false gods or prophets have gone into the world. And Jesus warned all but two of the seven churches in the book of Revelation to repent because they had fallen from grace. So this is a difficult one. I'll just throw it out there. Those are the two main interpretations. So the academic side of me would like to read this and say that this is talking about the church. It's going to begin small, it's going to grow, and it's going to cover the earth. If we take it to that, it's not going to happen until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he has dominion over the whole earth. Some believe that they look at it and saying it's the work of the church to evangelize the whole earth. And once the whole earth is evangelized, then Christ will come. 
the church has never been good about evangelizing that way. The church is not, in the United States, it's not growing, it's shrinking. And so if that's true, then we're doing a horrible job at this. The tree is getting smaller, not bigger. Now it is growing in other parts of the world, but not here in the United States. And I also understand the other side of this, where the birds and where leaven, where it's called technically expositional consistency, that uh, once a theme is introduced in the Bible, that helps us to understand the meaning of that theme throughout the Bible. So that of the birds, that of leaven, uh, both of them often spoken of in a bad light in Scripture. So I understand both sides of that. And I also understand the necessity of the church having both believers and unbelievers in the body the unbelievers not being part of the body of Christ, but they're there. They're there when you meet on a Sunday, when you worship. They're there. It gives them opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's a great place for us to be. So I can't really, I kind of go back and forth. I see value in both positions. One of this primarily speaks about the church and the effect, impact that it will have on the whole world. And on the other side of it, it also speaks about the corrupting influence that will come upon the church. We see both happening in our world. What the Lord has called us to do as part of the body of Christ in Matthew 6.10 is to be those who pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where I want us to land. And so finally, the narrow gate, Luke 13, 22 through 30. We pick up in verses 22 through 25. He went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, you will begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will not answer and he will answer. He will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. So as Jesus now is journeying toward Jerusalem to the hour of his crucifixion, Someone asked the question, are only a few going to be saved? And Jesus then, and he's talked about the wide and the narrow road, the wide and the narrow gate here. He's talked about this before. And it's not that Jesus spoke one message at a single time in the three years of his ministry. It would be natural for him to hit on these topics again, as we find it here in Luke's gospel now. And he talked to him about striving. The idea of this is to exert in the Greek, to exert maximum effort that you are striving to enter through the narrow gate because once the gate is shut, it will be too late for anyone to enter. They'll call out, Lord, Lord, and it'll be too late. And the Lord will say, I do not know you. Again, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. 
So the way of this world is walking down this broad road. It's leading them to the wide gate of destruction. But on the other hand, believers are those who are walking, yes, the straight and narrow, a way that leads to life, spiritual prosperity, the paths of this world leading to destruction, but the narrow path leading to life, that narrow path was first walked by Jesus himself through his glorious death, his burial, his resurrection that leads us to eternal life. So he says, verses 26 and 27, then you will begin to say, we eat and drink in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I will tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. First of all, notice the familiarity that the unbelievers had with Jesus. They said, we ate and drank in your presence. You were teaching in the streets. We saw you there. We were over at the pizza place having a slice while you were teaching the gospel over there. We saw you, but they didn't respond to him. And although they at this time were calling out, Lord, Lord, it was too late because they hadn't responded to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was in their midst. And even though they ate and drank in his presence, they had heard him teach. Jesus sees them as workers of iniquity because they had true, no true knowledge or true relationship with him. The scribes and Pharisees complained about Jesus in Mark 2.16, how he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, but they themselves were not those who were being saved. In fact, I love these closing verses here in verses 28 through 30, where it says, although there will be weeping and gnashing, it's not so much I love this part, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. You will see, it reminded me of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man could see Lazarus. He could see Abraham. He even communed with them, talked with Abraham especially, but he was in a place of suffering. They could see it. This is what I love, verse 29. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and will sit down at the kingdom of God. Verse 30, and indeed there, will, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. So they're going to come from the four points of the compass, from all over the world, from all different religions uh, they'll come to the truth of Jesus Christ not that the religion will be that truth for them they will be raised up perhaps in a different religion and different faith and they will learn of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ they will come from the north and from the south from the east and from the west I can't read that verse in Luke 1329 without tying it to Isaiah 43 5 through 7 where the Lord said fear not I am with you I will bring your descendants from the east I will gather you from the west I will say to the north give them up and to the south do not hold them back 
Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. As far as the world is concerned, (laughs) those who are last, they'll end up being first. Those who are first will end up being last. We can kind of view it this way. Like the thief who hung next to Jesus on the cross, Jesus said to one of the thieves, this day you will be in the kingdom of God. You will be in paradise. And we would think, really? Even the thief said to the other thief, we deserve this. We're being put to death for good reason. Not this man. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you will be in paradise. That's like the most unlikely person that you would expect to be in heaven. And then there'll be those that we will consider a shoe in. She lived such a great life. He was such a great servant. And we'll discover maybe one day they weren't believers at all. We need to be sure to enter into that narrow gate. That comes through faith in Jesus Christ, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. And may we be those who enter through the narrow gate of faith, those who will sit down in the kingdom of God. And Father, I pray that it would be so to each one who is here in the sanctuary, each one, Lord, that hears my voice today. May it not be so like those who cried out when the gate was shut, they cried out, Lord, Lord, where they had said, Lord, we heard you teach when we were in the streets. They were familiar with you, but their familiarity with you did not bring them into a saving knowledge or a relationship with you. They perhaps could quote chapter or verse but they did not know you as Savior and Lord. I pray, Lord, that each one hearing my voice would have that assurity of their own salvation through faith in your name. It's not, Lord, that striving to enter in. Lord, first and foremost, that begins by confessing that we are sinners and that we need you, Jesus, to save us from our sins through your work on the cross, your death, burial, and resurrection from the grave, that we might be saved. I pray, Lord, that each one here has made that confession of faith and that they know you as Savior. And now, Lord, as believers, they are striving to walk as part of the body of Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 